Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome a fellow mycophile, which you'll learn about in this episode, Miranda Ganshi. Miranda is an agriculturist, plant pathologist, and has a big focus on climate and economic justice, as well as the concept of land stewardship and sustainable agriculture. On this episode, Miranda shares a lot of beautiful information on a topic that I haven't had yet on the show, which is about our relationship with nature and agriculture and sustainability in that area and how we can reconnect more with our land and our food and where it comes from. We talk about the concepts around land stewardship, sustainability, mushrooms, and the ecological role they play, and climate and economic justice. So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hi, Miranda. Welcome to the Women Waken podcast. Hi, Whitney. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So happy to have you on the show. So wonderful to see you again. Miranda, I was staying with you back in, ooh, was that April or March? It might have been March. It was like late, yeah, like March when I was on my journey of bouncing from place to place, trying to stay at sea level when I was recovering from my health issues. And I was so lucky to come across your amazing place, which you have on Airbnb. If folks are looking for a nice spot right by the ocean in Watsonville, are you still rent, uh, putting those rooms out? Yes. Yeah. So much fun staying. And the first thing I noticed when I came to your house was that I felt like I was walking in to like this, this realm of like it's a very nature oriented home. Like I just noticed right away, your, your pictures are beautiful. There's a lot, I think right when you walk in, there's all these pictures of like different regions in California, mm-hmm. right? Like Big Sur and different, you know, oceans and parks. Yes. Right. And then you have a wall of some of your travels with your partner, Phil, who I got to meet. And then there's this whole backyard with beautiful gardens. And so I was immediately, I was like, I feel connected to these people. They're awesome. awesome. And you had a great room. It was a beautiful (laughs) space that I, I used. So it was so wonderful being there and getting to meet you and learn a little bit about you. Absolutely. It was lovely to chat it up with you while you were staying. Yeah. So Miranda, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? A big reason we had a great, beautiful discussion one day, like when I was right before clients and we were both kind of having our morning coffee and drinks and just kind of chatting up and I was hearing all about your work. And, you know, I focus on the divine feminine, right? That Women Waken is about like this idea of like shifting balance and harmony. And a huge part of that is the environment and nature and sustainable agriculture, is a huge thing. And yet it's not something I've I've had many guests speak to or talk about. Not many of my guests specialize in that. A lot of them do healing work and spiritual growth work, but I haven't had enough who do the work of how do we reconnect with our land and our earth, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's so important because, you know, the earth is mother earth. Right. And we're very disconnected from our relationship with that, with mother earth. And so I love speaking to people who are devoting themselves and their work and focusing on how do we create a more sustainable 
lifestyle and means of growing our food and nurturing ourselves and building our world without depleting our resources. Yes, those are big, big goals that we should all be working towards. And my journey was, well, I I first got connected to food uh, as somebody who grew up with parents and a mom that cooked all the time. So I love, love, love food. I love eating. And I went to culinary school. I worked in restaurants. I decided to go back to school. I got a bachelor of a bachelor of science in plant and soil science um, with a concentration in agroecology. And then I went on to get a master of science in plant pathology. And I have worked in agriculture research from breeding to researching different things with um, fungi and microorganisms. And I worked as a plant pathologist at Driscoll's, the berry company, um, identifying plant diseases and studying disease management. And I left Driscoll's. I traveled for a while. And then I became the garden educator at Freedom Elementary School. And that has been absolutely fabulous. And I'm also volunteering at Esperanza Farms, which is a local farm in Watsonville focused on um, not only sustainability for the land, but also economic justice for the people that work there and for the people that they serve. So I am very much focused on having a value system that I I'm always focused on figuring out, you know, like, am I being a part of the world that I want to live in and helping to create the world that I want to live in? And being in agriculture and thinking about sustainable agriculture and regenerative agriculture, we can definitely talk about how to position ourselves in a way that we can feel like we're doing more good for the earth than harm, but it's hard because it's, it's complicated. And, um, I often like to say that I'm in a process of doing some unlearning about things that I think society wide that we're just used to so much. And a lot of that is, you know, that our chicken should come in little cut up pieces and we never have to think about any anything. And th- people say that a lot, but oh my goodness, we are so disconnected from the land and from where our food comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's no one's fault, really. It's really just become a, a part of our, our system, our society. You know, it takes a, a concentrated effort and consciousness to to shift out of that because otherwise it's so easy to just you know it's quick it's fast it's convenient and usually less expensive to just get what's already packaged and processed and put together for you and so you know I don't there's no space I I think to criticize however I think it's important to offer and right. to let it be known that there are other ways and that it is possible to still have an affordable healthy sustainable way of living your life and feeding your family and yourself that isn't, you know, sort of this, this fast disconnected way. That's not always what's best for agriculture, for our health, for the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you spoke, you said that there's a lot of, um, 
a lot of ways, you know, besides just like getting like the packaged chicken and all that, but what are other ways that people might not even realize that, you know, that some of their, their daily habits or their daily routines are really kind of impacting our agricultural system? Well, one of the big ones that is talked about a lot is our expectation for absolute perfect produce. And we are, and of course, when you're in the store and you have a choice, you want something that looks like it's not dented, there's not any spots, there's not any splotches, there's not any discoloration. But then, of course, you are asking for a system which can produce that. And really, there's that's impossible. So you're going to generate a lot of food waste. And of course, as a plant pathologist, um, most of the time plant pathologists are focused on pathogens and diseases that are incredibly economically important, meaning that they are going to reduce yield in plants. But of course, there are a lot of pathogens and diseases that just make things look ugly. And um, we don't accept that as consumers. We don't want spots and splotches on things. And of course, there's a balance between it also, let's say as a consumer, we did accept a little bit of blemish. Well, depending on how long your supply chain is, a little bit of blemish is going to turn into a lot of blemish is going to damage an entire crate or carton or pallet of produce if you left it there. Yeah. Yeah, And so I think that that's, you know, it is sort of this conception that if something doesn't look right, it maybe isn't good or it's gone bad, but that's not often the case. I mean, produce literally comes from the ground. It comes from the earth. So it's going to be a little bit dirty and, but they make, I mean, then there's also, gosh, it's just such a, you know, wormhole is that, you know, they, they, the food that we get at our supermarkets aren't always like direct from the ground. I mean, they've come a long way, which means we don't always know what they've done to them to preserve them and to make them look so nice and pretty. I think that's a good question is like, how did they get them to look all shiny and, you know, waxy or whatever it is. And it's, it can be a little bit disconcerting to think like, huh, like how long has this apple been around? How long is it? What has this journey been? And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, came to me was, we're, we're very disconnected from where our food has come from and what its journey has been and what its current state is. And I'm a huge advocate of, you know, I'll eat almost anything. I'm a bit like I eat orange peels and <laughs> apple rinds and melon rinds. I'm just, I'll eat all of that. I'm like a goat. So I'll eat anything, no matter how it looks. And, but there is a movement, like they have imperfect produce and things like that, where you can like get a box every week, um, which is nice. I mean, I think that's a nice way to sort of open that door of like, Hey, it's okay if everything doesn't look perfect. So, but I think the bigger issue with this is one of what two big issues I'd like to talk about that I know about as far as agriculture, sustainability, food waste, because what we're talking about is it leads to food waste. We throw Mm -hmm. things out when we're like, eh, I don't think so. You know, and we, we toss it aside. And, but not only that, it's, we, over prepare for, you know, when there's gatherings, when there's events, we, people there's, it's so easy to get copious amount of food and then just be like, okay, we're not going to use it and just toss it. Right. Which is insane. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think another thing to think about with food waste, and of course there are so many things that there's going to be many, many, many more intricacies 
and nuance that that I can discuss. But something that needs to be thought about with food waste also is what it costs to harvest our food. And when I mean, it still blows my mind how cheap food is, even the cheap food. I mean, we have so much access to really cheap produce in this country and all of the work that goes into the planting and the care of those plants and the harvest. A lot of these plants are still hand harvested and you have a lot of produce that doesn't get picked because it's not it's actually not economical to pay people to go in the field to get it at that time. So then it's just wasted right there in the field. And, and that just, it it blows your mind, but that is the way that the system is set up now where we have these regions that are so focused on producing one particular thing and all of the economics have to make so much sense for every action that you take to get it most of the time hundreds and thousands of miles away. So there's food waste at so many levels of the chain. And then also, like you were talking about food waste, when it's just easy for us to get more than we need. Mm -hmm. And while yes, that is an issue and there should be a value discussion about, um, Understanding that we live, some of us live in such a world of plenty that maybe it has turned into a system where our values are a little messed up because we're not appreciating what we do have. However, at least in California, we're moving in this direction that it's becoming a statewide initiative that everything that is compostable is compostable. And at least if you're composting waste, then you're, then you are allowing nutrients to continue in a cycle so that they can be used again in a short period of time. When they're in the dump, it's going to take a long time to get those nutrients out of there and then back into the agricultural system. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's very many facets to the whole food waste and the, and just the, the depths that it goes. And to me, it's a bigger issue of, we are in such a hurry all the time in our world, in our societies. And we don't want to look at the inconveniences, the inconvenient truths of certain subjects. I mean, at this point, it's almost every subject. It's, you know, it's the way that we eat. It's the way that we, we live. It's the way that we travel. It's the way that we just, everything we do is just not really, it's not conducive to sustainability. It's not working, but it would be, it feels like such an arduous task to actually address them and make the big changes, you know, that it's, we, people just feel like, ah, what am I going to do? Right. And, but back to your point, you said that you started, you kind of asked yourself like, well, what can I do? to, you know, be a part of this. And I, you know, there's learning curves and all of that. And I had the same inkling a few years ago where I was really kind of trying to figure out alignment. So for me, alignment means, you know, your, your actions and your, your words are aligned with your thoughts and your inner feelings. Right. And so I was thinking, well, how do I, you know, what do I believe in? Well, I believe in fairness and everyone having equal access to resources and a good quality life. And, you know, just a, a, a place where we can be more at peace in our world and more harmonious and ex- just experience like greater balance. That's what it comes down to. And I looked at, you know, well, how, how do I conduct myself? How do I treat others? How do I go about the world? And the biggest thing I saw is 
the th- something that's in my control is how I eat and how I consume, you know, as in like how I buy things and then eat them. It's a huge part of the world. And so I made a decision a few years ago to try being vegan. And because it seemed like the most thing, the thing that was most aligned with, okay, it can reduce environmental impact. I think it might be better for my health. And, you know, the, for me, it was an ethical issue. It's like, if I, if I can avoid eating animals, I will. And in no way is that, you know, I'm not one to, to promote that or be an advocate of that just because I think that everybody has to make their own choice, whatever feels we can all do things to improve the way things are. It doesn't have, if you're totally into eating meat, like, and in some people that feels really good to them. And for me, I just realized, you know, it doesn't feel that good. So maybe I could just try going without it. And I was fine without it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think what it more is, is just people just trying things. And cause I think, again, we're kind of averse to like, oh gosh, I have to change everything if I want to make a difference. So I'll just change nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, but there are little ways that we can go about making changes that can affect change long term. And I think the more that people are open to it, the more we can see a shift. Because again, I think the biggest thing we see now is people feel like it's just so intertwined in the way we live that there's no hope. You know, mm-hmm. people who are kind of like don't want to look at climate change or environmental issues, they feel like, well, we're just this fast train is going to go off the cliff and let's just let it go. There's no way to recorrect it. But you know what I mean? Like, I think that attitude is fairly prevalent. Yes. And then if you take a stance, then oftentimes you feel like a hypocrite because it's like, oh, you might say, and and I agree with your reasoning completely and might say, well, I'm going to eat vegan because there's less of an environmental impact. True. And, but then if you get on a plane, you're like, oh, like, ah, my carbon footprint just went through the roof. So I should just give up. And it's like, no, no, no. I, I, I used to beat myself up about that a lot is like you try to stand for something. And then if you are loud about it, you feel like you're vulnerable to um, exposing the hypocrisy. But now as I've thought about that more, and as I've gotten older, I feel like what we're exposing is how the entire system is built on the wrong values. And we're a part of it. When I was younger, I felt like I would always latch on to something that I thought, oh, this is something that I feel like I should do to make the world the type of place that I want to live in. And let's say that is eating less meat, or let's say that is um, consuming less fuel in a car that doesn't consume as much fuel, or not not purchasing as much single-use items, things like that. And we all know that those are things that we can do to protect all of our resources. But then you'll do something else like getting into a plane and you know that the carbon footprint is really high. And then I would feel hypocritical. So I would feel like, oh, well, what's the what's the point in trying to stick with certain values when it's at the surface? Sometimes it can seem like an inconvenience when I might just be doing other things that completely negate the effect that I was going for. But as I've gotten older, I do realize that some of the things that I feel like might be exposing hypocrisy in myself is actually just exposing more flaws in the system that we live in and that our entire 
society is built in such a way that we are depleting resources at an extremely fast pace. And we need to be able to imagine a future in which we are living with values and practices that are protecting the earth for generations to come. And of course, there are so many people who have been talking about that for a long, 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 long time. But yes, I think that um, it's something to, to work towards always having goals where you feel like I am living in a way that I think is aligned with my values. And for me, at least, yeah, try not to let that little hypocrisy um, bug buzz, in your ear, bug, uh, slow me down. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. And I think that's the exact point, which again, I think is needed in every single facet of our world right now is looking at what are our values? Because our values and our belief govern all of our behavior. And they're governing our behavior now because our belief is that we can prioritize profit and growth more than sustainability and equality and balance for all, right? Right. It is, it's literally a mind boggling thing that there are some people on this planet who can have constant access to food and others that will starve to death because they do not have access. It's, it doesn't, there's, there's enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. There's enough of everything for everyone on this planet. We yes. it's just the exact what you said, it's our value system that makes it yes. we say no, it's not possible, it's just the way the world's going to be. Absolutely not. It's just the way we've made it. Right. And so, you know, and we're reaching this fever pitch of, you know, we have to make changes now or we're we're going to see the 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 results of keeping the value system as we have it, which is, you know, we're going to see more and more consequences. Right. And in in agriculture, of course, we have very centralized production systems for all sorts of things, for meats, for strawberries, for apples, for so every single item. We have regions where that's where that is produced. And of course, that system exists because of profit being the number one motivator. So how how do you think that we can start to change the system, fix the system? Whitney, what a big question. <laughs> what? You don't have it figured out? Do you have like a plan? Do you have like it, you know, a proposal? Come on, Miranda. <laughs> well, I one of the things that I love that you and your guests talk about a lot is that we have to we have to imagine that it can be different. For me, that has been the biggest hurdle is the unlearning of well, the unlearning of the acceptance that this is the way it is. A scale that we can't even imagine. Indigenous peoples have been managing land on a scale that I, I I find it hard to imagine, and it's something that I've been educating myself about a lot recently, is how they were managing a landscape where not only were humans a part of the landscape, they were stewards of the landscape, and they were planting trees, bearing edible food, they're planting all sorts of things all around that 
yes, we might think of um, some folks as foragers, but in another angle, they were managing landscapes on such large scales that it seems like you're foraging from the wild, but they weren't foraging from the wild. They had just planted without fences and without acres. Do you know what I mean? So that's just one way to imagine, could we produce food in a way that is totally different than what we see today? And sure, I don't have the answers, but at least I can look to some folks that did it differently in the past and some people that are doing things differently than the um, than the mainstream today and just imagine how would it be if things were different. So that's the first thing is being open to the idea of change and change will happen and change does happen. So that's, that's the first thing. And then second of all, um, I do think as you were commenting earlier about our choices as consumers, that yes, it is incredibly important that we choose items, not only food items, but clothing items and the frequency with which we make purchases. And there's so much that we consume that we can control. But of course, um, we are a part of a system where we're all guilty of making convenient choices. Yeah. I mean, we live in a convenience culture. It's, and because again, like we were talking about earlier, we're so busy. We've made our lives so busy that it feels hard to slow down long enough to make more conscious and more patient decisions, you know, things that, that take time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was mentioning to you earlier before we started recording that um, this morning I was volunteering and helping to harvest at Esperanza Community Farms. And I was out at the farm for two and a half hours. And what a lovely, gorgeous way to start the day. And it is not only actually fun to harvest and help out. It just feels like a lovely way to start the day harvesting at a pace that feels good for our for my own body. And we know that many people that work in agriculture, they are subjecting their body to incredibly difficult situations for hours and hours and hours and hours on end. And that system is not sustainable. But the idea that maybe we could produce ample food if we actually were all contributing a little bit or some of us were contributing a little more than others as far as the hours in the field. But if we had a different mindset on like what production agriculture could look like and who are we producing for, yes, I think we can think of so many different ways. And I I wish I had the answers, of course, but I think that we all know that there, there has to be something different. Yeah, absolutely. And Miranda, earlier you used the term stewardship. Can you share about that? Because something I read in a book um, once really stirred me and it said that one of our greatest issues on this planet is that we are so tied to the idea of ownership. 
this is mine, not yours. These are the parameters of my property and I own this land. Yet the idea of stewardship is that we are merely caretakers. We merely are, are have the great gift of being a part of this land for this small amount of time. We're not owners of it. We're just caretakers. We're taking care of it. We're stewards of it. So can you share a little bit about that, about your idea of stewardship? Absolutely. And I think that this ties into, for my own journey, the, the, the unlearning of what I, what I have been taught about our relationship with the land. And yes, I have been taught that the goal is to own a home and I am a homeowner right now. And there's a lot of benefits to that. But can we imagine a society in which we were all stewards of the land and sharing? And what I have been working on in a learning, unlearning process um, has led me to reading a lot about ways that indigenous peoples have talked about how they have stewarded the land in the past and in the present. And a lot of that means that not only are we humans living in this space, we are managing the space in a way that is good for the plants, good for the animals, good for the humans, good for the water, good for the air, and recognizing ways that you can behave that don't deplete those resources and keep them around for generations to come. And so some examples of land stewardship is, yes, well, pardon me. So as you were talking about before with um, gates and fences and things like that. But let's say you do want to raise animals. Well, planting, grazing, planting plants that animals would graze on in particular areas and planting other types of plants in other areas. But then it's not planting only one type of plant. They would plant many different types of plants. And um, in ways like that, we can be stewards. Um, for example, we can do things like, <laughs> this is such a tiny little example, but I'm laughing because um, you can offer your hair to the birds, but instead we take it out of our hairbrush and we put it in the garbage. Now, are we the best land stewards if we take our hair out of our hairbrush and give it to the birds? Well, maybe that's just a teeny tiny step, but that's just an example of if that's what you were always taught, that you offer something that you have to the environment around you, then you can be a steward of the land. You're helping the birds build their nest by taking your hair and putting it outside rather than in the garbage. What, you wait, know what I, wait, the birds want our hair? To build their nests, yes. I didn't know this. Okay. Yes, they'll use it. <laughs> and actually there are folks that make little devices like a little wire cage and you can put your hair in the wire cage and hang it up and then the birds will come and get it and build their nests. Oh my gosh, that is so Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I had no idea. I actually always felt guilty when I would like throw my hair out to the wind. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, something. well, and of course, there is so much to be said for the, and I'm talking a bit about 
indigenous cultures because I have been reading a little bit about indigenous nations and indigenous peoples and how they have stewarded land. But what we have to remember is that you have generations and generations and generations and generations of accumulated knowledge that people were benefiting from. And a lot of that was taken from them, even though a lot of people have obviously incredible knowledge today. But all of that to say that there are, there's so much to be said for, um, we, we have unlearning and we have learning to do. And yes, maybe taking pounds and pounds of hair and dumping out the front yard isn't the right approach, but it is a fact that birds can use hair to build nests. So oh, there's I'm, a lot I'm of jokes. I'm so excited. I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> but again, there's a lot of things that we, we need to reacquaint ourselves with. How do we live with the environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that brings us back to, you know, when you brought up stewardship and you said, well, you know, I'm a homeowner. I, it's not about, you know, criticizing anyone. Again, like if you choose not to eat meat, it's not about criticizing meat eaters. If you choose to grow your own food, it's not about... I mean, at least that's my thought is we can't blame or point the finger at anyone because we're all in this together. We're all in a process. It's in our own time. We take our own steps that feel most comfortable. So the same way, but also it's the fact that we are working with what we have right now, which is a right. system that's been created a certain way. Who We can't go about our lives without ownership right now. It's just the way it is. My The reason why I bring it up and the reason why I appreciate the idea of stewardship is we're always thinking about how can life be? Not necessarily how is it now and how can we change it overnight? It's not going to happen. But we always need to ask the question of, can it be different? And is this working for us? And if it's not, okay, well, we're not going to burn it down. You know, ownership is how our system is created right now. But what could it look like in 50 years, 100 years, even 10 years, if we start to say, you know, what if we're more so all just sharing together and taking care of land and serving the land and, and really reconnecting ourselves with the land so the land can continue to thrive and live on because we need it. Mm-hmm. We act as if we don't need this amazing, remarkable planet that has these intricate and fascinating ways of operating and producing life for us. But we, you know, we do need it and we have to, we can't abuse it the way we have been. And that brings me to another point, aside from food waste, another thing I've heard a lot about that I've heard about it, but it's not talked about publicly that much is the, the problem with our soil with, you know, nutrients, healthy soil is being depleted across our world. And when we run out of that, we're in big trouble because that's where our food grows from. Absolutely. And I think the biggest contributor to the soil being depleted is really that it's getting eroded. And so it's moving away from our arable land somewhere else. And that is detrimental. And there are all sorts of things that are done in agriculture to try to prevent erosion. But again, um, I think if we let ourselves imagine that we could manage landscapes on a way where we are um, harvesting from a lot of perennial plants and we're not always replanting and replanting and replanting annually, that that's just a different way to think about, oh, what, what could we do to let the soil continue to form where it is 
compared to what we need to do to plant constantly, which is work the soil. And of course, there are a lot of producers of field crops that are working uh, in no-till or reduced till or strip till systems. And all of that is done to prevent erosion and it can be very effective. Okay, fantastic. Thanks for shedding some light on that. And because you, you kind of have more of a, a ground level, no pun intended, but um, ground level understanding of this, which is something that I've just heard a lot about and just seems very concerning to me. Because again, it seems like, you know, another, um, you know, sort of subset of that, which is being, you know, lost based on our value systems, based on the way that we've created our societies and our companies and corporations that just can't, they don't have the time to consider soil um, quality and to be, you know, again, tilling it and making sure it's staying healthy. It's because we need to be, well, here's the other thing. Well, we basically already talked about it because humans are so impatient. We want everything and it's a consumer market. So we want to have all foods available all the time, which isn't a reality, right? And not all foods are available, but we have to make them so. So we create, you know, we have to create um, sometimes, is it, would you say unnatural environments to grow foods that aren't really in season or does, you know what I'm saying? I do, but what we have done is we are growing plants all around the world and shipping them. And that's what allows most of our produce to have a presence in the grocery store all year long. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we, we sort of import and ship and do all these things rather than, and, and then that kind of affects local economies and farmers. Right. Yes. Yes. And and that's where, again, it's it's it can be very, 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 very complicated, but it's we will say, oh, well, it's cheaper to produce in this particular area because we can achieve economies of scale and we can uh, we can grow this much. And then it's worth it to have all this equipment and to hire these people and to do this work and to harvest it. And if we want to do it differently, where we have a smaller diversified farm in certain regions, then it's more expensive because we're not reaching economies of scale because we are spending our time on a lot of different crops, which takes more time than producing one crop in one area. So then when we say it's more expensive, well, usually that's because the other system has been subsidized for a variety of reasons. So yes, it it gets it gets really complicated and sometimes it's hard to understand exactly why. Oh, well, if I bought this produce from somebody down the road, how can it be more expensive than what's in the grocery store? And so much of that is, I mean, again, there's just so much nuance from the price of inputs for the growers, for what they're paying for, for their small equipment that they're operating themselves versus hiring a whole fleet of equipment that they can hire at a smaller rate because they're cultivating a much larger area, things like there's just so much that goes into um, why sometimes 
local stuff is more expensive. But if our values, I think, were more in line with focusing on not only economic justice and sustainability for those that are in our community that are growing our food, but also taking care of the land by growing diverse crops, then yes, perhaps we we wouldn't have to choose <laughs> one or the other. The system would just be such that the majority of our food would be coming from um, a more local area. Right. And then Miranda, you brought, you brought up another poignant topic. How would you describe economic justice and climate justice? So economic and climate justice, at the way I would describe it, economic justice is, for example, in agriculture, I think that we should be prioritizing economic justice for all of the people that work along the supply chain in agriculture. And it is a pretty well-known fact that those that work in the field and those that are harvesting, they get paid the absolute very least of everyone that touches that piece of fruit. And think about all of the entities that are touching that piece of fruit from the grower to the shipper to the grocery store, all of those people along the whole chain are making money. But the people that are usually in my opinion, doing some of the toughest work, they don't make enough money for the job that they're doing. So they're not getting any economic justice from the value of the thing that they're helping to produce. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, is, I mean, that is such a deep rooted, deep seated issue in our world with almost anything, any single commodity export, import anything, right? Is it always that the people that are risking their lives or sacrificing quality of life for these products are the ones who see so little for it? And they're not the ones who are making those millions and billions. Right. And yeah, that is that is not just. <sighs> and then climate justice, it's usually the people, I mean, when we think about it on a global scale, people will talk about how those that are consuming the most in the richest countries and contributing the most to increased concentration of carbon dioxide in the air are actually experiencing the least amount of climate emergencies. And so on a global scale, that's not just. And then also in, on a more micro scale, we often see that areas that have the least trees, areas that have the worst air quality are often areas that are the lowest income. So how is that just? It's like, oh, there are low income areas. So if you're in a higher income area, you deserve more green space. That's not a value that I want to have. Yeah, absolutely. And then again, with both of those topics, these are other areas where people will say, what could I possibly do that could make a difference to this systemic, deep, centuries-long struggle of inequality and injustice? What can someone do if they're feeling this call and this this frustration with, I I don't like the way things are? It doesn't... Because here's the thing that I say about 
the, the state of our world right now is none of our consciences are clear and that we mm-hmm. all feel that we're all connected, right? We know this, anyone who's, who's attuned to nature, who's attuned to growing as you are, agriculture and all that, we know that all systems are interwoven and connected. Every one thing affects the other. Well, the same is true of humans. You know, there's, it's, we, some of us can't suffer and others of us just be clear of it. Does that make sense? To me, it's when when the, there's those of us who are suffering and just oppressed and marginalized that we all feel it. We all mm-hmm. feel it. We can't sleep well at night when we know, even if we're not consciously thinking of it subconsciously, we sense that our you know fellow beings are not well and not being treated right. So for those of us who are feeling connected with that, what can people do? Do you think? Well, I think about this a lot, Whitney, and thank you for asking the question. And one one thing is if if you're somebody that has any control over pay is to distribute pay as equitably as possible. I have been researching a lot about worker-owned cooperatives in which the whole premise is that everybody that participates in the production of a good should get paid a fair amount and everybody should be in agreement that everyone deserves the fair amount to get paid. And so, yeah, what can people do? Uh, I'm not a (laughs) CEO of a company making 400 times more than one of my employees. And I would hope that I never would be, but if I was, I would change that right away. <laughs> so that, but that, <laughs> and yes, I think talking talking about things like worker-owned cooperatives, when you have an option to choose for um, to choose a, to make a purchase from a worker-owned cooperative, I try to make that choice, knowing that those entities have gone into business with the idea that everybody that works for them is getting paid a fair amount for what they're producing. Yeah. Beautiful. Those are some fantastic ideas. I just love that you have things to offer and just put out. Cause if we all just have a couple little things that we can offer, again, these are the seeds for, for change and people, cause the, and that's why, you know, I have a podcast and I want to do more, you know, spoken, word outlets, you know, videos and, and interviews and all these things, because the more these ideas are spoken, they get into people's minds and these seeds are planted for a, for better, for change, for positive change, right. Where we can start to understand and believe that change is possible. Yes. Thank you, Whitney. Yeah. And then, okay, Miranda, we've talked about some really heavy topics and I'm so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful we went there but to close, I'd really like to touch on one of my favorite topics, which is mushrooms, because you are a bit of a, a mushroom expert and connoisseur. Can you tell us about your work with mushrooms and their role in the their ecological role? Yes. Um, so first of all, I'll say, Whitney, that I do identify as a mycophile. <laughs> oh my gosh, what's that? So someone who loves mushrooms. So you can oh, identify as a mycophile too. Oh my gosh, I'm a total mycophile and I'm so stoked. Okay, glad to know. Yes. Now I can represent that. Myco, like Mike, is it M-I-C-O? How do you spell that? M-Y-C-O-P-H-I-L-E. Mycophile, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, and then I'll, I'll circle back just earlier. You were asking about um, the, the, health, the, the health and protection of our soils. And when we talk about losing soils, we are usually talking about soil eroding and there are a lot of issues with that. But also when we're talking about building soil health, part of that is building diverse populations of microorganisms that live in the soil. And many of those microorganisms are fungi. And many of them are doing really, really, really important things in nutrient cycling. And the less that you are tilling the soil, the more diverse inputs that you put into the soil. When I say diverse inputs, I mean different types of crops where you're going to have different types of exudates, which that means what's coming out of the roots as the plants are living. That helps to feed the microbes in the soil. So um, so anyways, I just want to touch on that, that as part of promoting soil health, we are promoting the... Um, a, a growth of a diverse population of different microorganisms, including mm. fungi, but also other types of organisms. So I love um, fungi for the role that they play in nutrient cycle. And also when you have more diverse pathogen, or excuse me, when you have more diverse microbes in the soil, then you can reduce um, abundant pathogen population. So that's my world in plant pathology. Um, we always want more beneficial microbes in the soil. So to answer your questions, fungi, they have such an incredibly important role in recycling nutrients. And I spoke a little bit about in an agricultural system, but also one thing that folks love to say in any forest um, uh, a, a class that you're talking about forest ecology is that we would be walking around in just um, feet and feet and feet and meters and meters and meters of debris in the forest if it weren't for all of the fungal mycelium that is working towards breaking that down and turning it into soil. So um, many different types of fungal organisms and other microbes play incredible parts in, in building soil and help to break down all of the organic junk that is around us that we don't want to tromps around in per se. <laughs> um, and then for me, I love mushrooms. I love eating mushrooms. I love looking at them. They're so beautiful and delicious. They're so pretty and intricate and they're so good. They're so tasty. They are. And I love that. And, and again, this, this goes into the whole conversation with, but for me, I love that it's becoming more popular that we are seeing more types of um, mushrooms for sale, whether that's at the farmer's market or at the grocery store or at a specialty shop. And, and all of that is great. But again, this goes into this whole conversation about agriculture and consumption and where, where are these things coming from and where are they getting shipped from? And where are they getting harvested from? And all of those are really important questions. However, I love trying new mushrooms and many there are so many more mushrooms out there that are absolutely amazing that hopefully if the, those that are 
also mycophiles will get a chance to try someday. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, can you name some of your favorites? Because when I really got into my, the mushroom game, I was blown away by how many types there are. There are so many. And and I mean, there's like thousands, right? I mean, throughout the world or a lot. <laughs> I might be overstating it, but... Um, probably in the hundreds okay. that are, that are um, commonly eaten, grown, or foraged by humans. That would be my guess. Um, but I wouldn't doubt it if it went into the thousands. Wow. Okay. And, well, that, and, and, and of course that wouldn't be anything that was commercially available, right. but yes. The, okay. So what the are diversity your top, is amazing. What are your top mushrooms that you think people should try? Cause most people know, you know, they know like white mushrooms and Bella portabellas, right. Shiitake maybe. But do they know about lion's mane? Oh my gosh. Do they know about oyster mushrooms? What else you got to offer? <laughs> lion's mane is one of my favorite. Oh. King King trumpet is also one of my favorite. Mm. And I will put in a plug for button mushrooms and a plug for really good, <laughs> high quality button mushrooms. Okay. It blows my mind now here again is where if we want to talk about, oh, you know, sometimes dented fruit is good, but old deteriorating mushrooms are not good at all. Oh, what? <laughs> but, Tell us about this. <laughs> because some grocery stores, they always just have mushrooms that are looking a little just dry and they're not firm, but when you get a good quality button mushroom and saute it up with some onions, I think it's absolutely fantastic. So good. Wait, so let's, let's go back a little bit. You're saying there are, there are a point where you don't want to eat mushrooms that they're not looking so good. Cause I, I will eat almost any plant, no matter how, unless it's like, you know, on its last, very last leg and oozing stuff. But is there a certain point where you shouldn't eat mushrooms? No, I think in, I guess in the spirit of um, <laughs> defending, because a lot of people that say, oh, I don't like mushrooms because of the texture. A lot of times they have had slimy mushrooms yeah. Yeah. that are, that really probably weren't the best to start with. Right. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that there is a big range in the quality of mushrooms that you can buy. And if you've had like, mushrooms that are deteriorating and didn't like them, then maybe giving um, mushrooms that are more firm and fresh a try could change your mind. But to your point, of course, if you have let things gone to the point that they're deteriorating a little bit, you you can eat it or compost it. <laughs> there you go. Compost is good. Okay. And then I have to bring it up just because people are probably going to, everyone's like probably wondering like, well, what about psilocybin? What about magic mushrooms? Are you, have you ever tried those? I personally haven't. I know people have had great experiences. I'm not so great. I'm not super into psychedelics, but have you gone there? And do you appreciate the magic type of mushrooms? I appreciate the magic mushrooms <laughs> incredibly, but personally, I, I, I have tried them, but I haven't had a magical experience. Okay. And I do think that there is so much to be said for the environment that you're in, knowing the dose that you're getting, and also being the type of person where you can um, let your body experience something without your mind taking over in an anxious state. 
And I think that they're, you know, <laughs> we we have hit on imagination a lot during this podcast. And I think that there is a lot of evidence that magical mushrooms and many other psychedelic um, types of uh, things that we can eat and consume can take our imagination to fabulous places. Mm -hmm. And why, why would we not want to do that as a, as humans? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seems to have been a big, catalyst and a, a part of envisioning new worlds and new ways of doing things. People talk often about using psychedelics to, and to open their and expand their mind and concepts beyond what is into what could be. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. So, and so more power to that, but you know, there's, there's different people for every different thing. And, you know, I'll talk about it and I'll let other people do the psychedelic wanderings and bring that information back. <laughs> well, and the whole concept of microdosing is yeah. super interesting because yeah, the idea of tripping for 12 hours and you yeah. have no idea what's going to happen. That's very intimidating. And maybe you cannot let your imagination run for that long. <laughs> Other people can, but yes, this whole concept of microdosing, especially as a substitute for other types of synthetic medications that people might be taking. I mean, that sounds fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I encourage that so much, you know, as a therapist, even I'm, I'm in total support of, you know, they're using now, you know, different, even, you know, LSD and ketamine and, um, marijuana and, mushrooms. It's why not? We got to try the whole thing. If it's not for you, it's not for you. But if you are looking to try alternatives, you know, wh why not is what I say. Mm -hmm. Agree with you there. Yeah. So again, I'm going to stick to my beautiful sauteed, delicious varietals of mushrooms and expanding my mycophilia. <laughs> <laughs> That you you are now you now say I identify as a mycophile. I, oh, and and um, one other thing, we don't have to go into the details here, but look up a, a recipe for mushroom duck cell and try it, and let me know what you think. Mushroom duck cell is that a type yes. of mushroom? It's a type of way to cook mushrooms. Oh, okay. Does it involve a duck or no? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right, Miranda. Well, this has been so much fun and thank you for your insights and expertise. And thank you for allowing for an opportunity to discuss our world and our ecosystem and our agriculture and mushrooms. Lovely. Thank you. And thank you for putting this out into the world. And like you said, the making space for imagination and ideas to be discussed is, is lovely. So thank you. Absolutely. And Miranda, if people want to connect with you, are you on social media? Do you want to put out any information for people to contact you? Um, I do not use social media and I am on Instagram, rather be outside MG, but oh, cool. I really don't use it too much. Well, I'm going to find you there anyways. Rather be outside. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I'm going to find you and people are going to find you and maybe you can, you can talk to them. Maybe we can start, start a um, mycophile club on Instagram. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm sure that exists. So we, we can follow the, the, the good leaders out there. Okay. All right, Miranda, we'll have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. Have a good day. That wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at Whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.